Today on Government Matters, top leaders gone at the government's civilian cyber nerve center. A review of the risks of the changes just weeks before a new administration. Three new challenges for the incoming Biden administration at the Pentagon. Input from the DOD Inspector General on what's ahead for the new team. And the number one story of the week, 88% of employees at the Office of Management and Budget moving to the new Schedule F. Tony Reardon of NTEU and Max Steyer of the Partnership for Public Service on how to limit or stop the damage from the president's executive order. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Chris Krebs is out as the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the Trump administration, also asking CISA Deputy Director Matthew Travis and CISA's Assistant Director for Cybersecurity, Brian Ware, to step down. Suzanne Spaulding is Senior Advisor of Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's former Undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate at DHS. Chris Painter is President of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise Foundation. He's former Coordinator for Cyber Issues at the State Department. Folks, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me today. What is the state, Suzanne, I'll start with you, of our cyber posture as the Biden administration takes over? And what are the main pieces that they should be working on? So, uh, despite the disruption uh, at CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency that was led by Chris Krebs, who was fired for telling the truth, uh, I have great confidence that the professionals that are at the agency, from the acting director, Brandon Wales, uh, to uh, the other career professionals who are there, Bob Kalaski, M Emily Early, Steve Harris, Dan Sutherland, I could go on. They are doing the mission every day uh, of strengthening the security and resilience of our critical infrastructure against all hazards, physical and cyber. Um, so I think we are in good shape in terms of the uh, ongoing mission activities uh, at that agency. But the cyber mission continues to be incredibly challenging. And as the new administration comes in, they are going to own all of those challenges at noon on January 20th, which is why it's so important that this transition has begun. Chris, uh, your credential speaks to the issue that uh, CISA is responsible for right now, and that is coordinating among the individual agencies, private sector, and many other stakeholders. What's your sense of what should happen in the new administration at the individual agencies? You and I have spoken before about your desire to see someone restored to a position like you held at state. Is that something we should expect to see separate and distinct from chief information officers or CISOs across each agency, someone whose task is to oversee cybersecurity? Yeah, and, and certainly the chief information security officers are important. But you also need policy leadership and you need a, a conductor for the orchestra, if you will. And so the Trump administration demoted and really got rid of the White House cyber coordinator. They demoted and essentially buried my old office, my old position at the State Department, which coordinated those international developments. And I expect in a new in a Biden administration, you'll see both of those things restored in some manner. I think that many recommendations have come out that propose that. Uh, we need a coordinated policy to deal with these. I, I agree with Suzanne that we have good people still at DHS, but this is an area, this is a time when we're particularly vulnerable because we're in this transition period and there's certainly a lot of state and non-state actors out there. 
And the priority of cybersecurity has never been more important. So the number one thing I think that we'll see, and the most important thing, is a signaling that this really is a priority, a national security, economic, and foreign policy priority for this new administration. And part of that will be putting these structures in place to make sure that we can carry out that mission. Would establishing, Chris, that White House position be the most important signal, though, that a new administration could send? I think it's a very important signal. I, I think that says, look, we're elevating this back to the position it needs to be. This is a core issue, uh, again, of our national security, and we're putting someone in charge who will orchestrate the efforts of a lot of great agencies, of DHS, of State, of Department of Justice, of the Department of Defense and Commerce. Uh, you really need that, that call, and that signals both to our friends and to our adversaries, this is a very important issue. Now, of course, we also have to do the substantive work of making sure that those agencies are prepared to deal with these issues, that we're prioritizing this in our, our, in our interactions between the president uh, and all the cabinet secretaries. You know, one thing that I saw under the Obama administration is President Obama raised this issue almost all the time with his foreign counterparts. That never happened under President Trump. So having that level of engagement helps the entire uh, government prioritize these issues. Suzanne, we focus a lot on, on this program and in the general cyber discussion about the issues that we have with potential adversaries or bad actors that want to try to do bad things to us. What does a constructive cyber alliance or partnership look like around the world in the new administration, do you think? Yes, well, it, uh, much like the partnership that we have worked for years to forge with the private sector, it starts with having uh, mutual respect and understanding of what each side brings to the table. Um, we, we worked on some important cyber agreements with countries around the world, and we need to continue to do that. And it needs to happen at the most senior levels, but it also needs to continue to happen on a daily basis at the working level. Uh, these, uh, you know, computer emergency response uh, teams uh, around the country that we have helped to build, uh, those working relationships are so important. And then the work that Chris did on building international norms so that we have uh, a firm understanding of what it is, what our key objectives are, what is and is not acceptable in cyberspace so that we can begin to build a more effective deterrent strategy. And this is what the Cybersecurity Solarium uh, Commission was talking about in, in talking about a layered deterrence and strategic deterrence. We have about a minute left, Chris, and when Suzanne says international norms, I go back to your former position. It strikes me that person or some person doing some similar work at state will be one of the most important people in the administration to work on establishing those international norms and then watching them mature. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now, I think implementing those norms, making sure that there are consequences for bad actors who violate those rules of the road, uh, so there's accountability and there's deterrence, working on capacity building, these are all key things going forward, and, and really having that position to lead these is important. I did say one other thing, and the Biden administration more generally has already signaled that we're returning, that the U.S. is returning to the world stage. We are going to prioritize our alliances, both with traditional allies, but also partners around the world. And that's going to be incredibly helpful in building this international system where we do both have understandings of what's acceptable and what's not, but also consequences for those who transgress those rules. And so. Um, that kind of uh, those kind of partnerships internationally are going to be critically important, both at the cyber level 
and also at the larger level as we're dealing with friends and allies around the world that we're not undermining our allies we're building on things like nato and bilateral and multilateral relationships chris painter suzanne spaulding a terrific conversation thanks very much for joining me today up next, the biggest management challenges at the Pentagon, solving the toughest problems in the government's biggest agency. You're watching ABC7. The Department of Defense has a new list of top management challenges to address in the coming year. The Defense Department Office of Inspector General added three new challenges this year that weren't on last year's list. Leo Fitzharris is Assistant Inspector General for Strategic Planning and Performance in the Office of the Inspector General at the Department of Defense. Leo, welcome back. Thanks for coming on the program. How has this year's list changed from last year's list? Well, good morning and thank you for having me on. Um, this year's list includes three new management challenges. We've also taken the opportunity to combine several of the challenges from last year. We also uh, included four that are what I would consider more uh, enduring or legacy challenges that the Department of Defense faces. The management challenges document itself is a, an important uh, statement it's the inspector general's independent assessment of the top uh, performance and management challenges facing the DOD and we assemble this document and identify the challenges through uh, outreach with the Department of Defense as well as Congress our uh, oversight partners in the department as well as uh, what is uh, of concern to uh, the American people have you seen areas of improvement among these management challenges in the past year? Uh, we have. Uh, in terms of uh, financial management, the department is working very hard on uh, improving internal controls as well as accounting. Our recently issued agency financial report uh, addresses some of those. And in each one of the challenges, uh, we talk a little bit about what the department is actually doing to uh, implement policy, uh, make structural changes to address each of the uh, challenges. One of the ones that jumped out at me because it's not just limited to the Department of Defense as a management challenge, but all across the federal government as an enterprise, is transforming data into a strategic asset. The uh, department as an enterprise and each of the branches has devoted now personnel specifically named uh, tasked with being responsible for data. What's your sense of how that is working to deliver on the department's mission by using data? Well, I definitely know that it is a uh, known challenge to the Department of Defense. There is um, quintillions of bytes of information that are generated on a daily basis. And it's the department's priority to make sure that uh, the information that they're collecting is secured, analyzed, and provided to decision makers in a timely fashion. Um, they're also working under the federal uh, plan and aligning actions about uh, related to uh, the storage, uh, as well as, um, and we describe it in terms of the, the volume of data, the uh, velocity of data that's coming in, the variety of data, and then lastly, the veracity of data, meaning uh, what's our level of confidence in the data? 
The, an, another of the new additions to the list this year, Leo, is building and sustaining DOD's technological dominance. What are the strengths and weaknesses of the efforts that the department's undertaken to do that? So in terms of uh, emerging technologies, emerging technologies are going to transform the way that the Department of Defense uh, conducts warfare. We know that, um, and our management challenge outlines several from uh, hypersonics to 5G to microelectronics and, and the importance of developing those technologies, implementing them into uh, operations, and then uh, most importantly, securing um, those technologies from our near-peer competitors. The third new addition to the list is strengthening resiliency to non-traditional threats. Define non-traditional threats and define what resiliency means and how it could be strengthened. So the, the OIG this year, this is a new one um, and obviously is very timely with the pandemic. So the pandemic is a, an example of a non-traditional um, threat to the Department of Defense. It impacts our personnel, uh, our operations where we're either delaying or canceling training exercises as well as the, the pipeline of volunteers who are trying to serve in the military. Um, the, other, the other thing that uh, with weather um, and the extreme uh, or the symptoms of extreme weather, whether it be drought or flooding, um, as well as, uh, as many of us have been talking about, um, sort of the reduction of ice um, in the Arctic. Those are the... Those are the three additions of the seven that uh, other items on the list. Are there any that have gotten significantly better or worse in the past year, Leo, or are we kind of in a holding maintenance pattern? So I think the department, um, obviously some of these, um, the four that I previously mentioned, uh, challenges are enduring. Um, the department has worked very hard on the agency financial um, uh, statements um, they utilizing uh, the compendium of open recommendations that we produce every July. They have been focusing on their business operations and reform as it relates to uh, business enterprise architecture, as well as um, I think most importantly, taking care of everyone during the pandemic. So the health and wellness uh, challenge that remains in our, in our statement is significant. Leo Fitzharris, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you back on the program. Thank you for having me on. Up next, the number one story of the week, the future of the controversial Schedule F executive order. Straight ahead on Government Matters, whether outrage over that rule could spark a retirement wave. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. Now, the number one story of the week. The Office of Management and Budget has reclassified 88% of its employees as eligible for Schedule F. It has employees at other agencies worried they might go on the Schedule F list at their agencies. Tony Reardon is president of the National Treasury Employees Union. Max Stiers, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Tony, what's your sense of what this does, not just to the workforce, 
at the Office of Management and Budget, but more broadly across government? Well, you know, Francis, I think that this is really an alarming executive order. And, and we at NTEU and many others across government, candidly, um, immediately saw it for what it is, an attempt to undermine the civil service. You know, for the positions in Schedule F, um, merit would be set aside in favor of political loyalty. And candidly, I think that this is dangerous for employees. It's dangerous for our federal agencies, for taxpayers, and, and, and frankly, for um, our country as well. Max, what is the takeaway from your perspective as far as how this affects what the workforce might look like when the Biden administration takes over on January 20th? December 31st is right around the corner. That's a very appealing day for people who might decide, I just don't want to deal with all of this anymore to decide they're going to retire. So I think Tony has this entirely right. This is alarming. It's a terrible policy done in a terrible way. And I am um, hoping that uh, the work that NTU is doing uh, on litigation will will stop this. Um, we are working also with folks on the Hill to see if there's a way to, to stop the policy. The truth is that um, it does undermine the core merit-based principle that we want the best and brightest who are there for the right reasons uh, in government serving the American public. You ask what this could mean. Clearly, it could mean that people leave. Uh, lots of folks in the government are retirement eligible. It opens a door for firing people without cause and hiring people who are not, in fact, the best people for the jobs, but because they share the same political stripe. The Biden team coming in is going to have to not just roll this back, but do a lot of fixing around this, around the morale. Um, there's a little bit of the, you know, the Trump team crashing the car uh, before they return the keys. You know, yeah, you can take it to the shop, but the reality is that people can get hurt in the meanwhile. I don't know if your car is going to be, you know, returned back to its former shape. Uh, and um, the, the the harm is is, is substantial. The, the work that has to be done by government in the here and now could be compromised. So full disclosure, gentlemen, we I wanted to make this a discussion from people looking at this at both sides of the aisle. We couldn't, or both sides of the issue, we weren't able to identify anyone besides someone in the administration. Who, was, who wanted to come on and talk about the positives of this. Tony, the legislation that, that Max just mentioned that your, uh, your union and others are pursuing is one possible remedy here. Legislative remedy is another one that's possible. What else is there to try to help these employees that might be in a bad situation? Well, you know, I think um, that if the EO, Francis, was used to actually remove career federal employees, and replace them with unqualified uh, political people, for example, that same EO could be used to reverse uh, those changes and put the career um, staff back in place. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be asking the Biden administration to undo any damage that may be done by Schedule F and then resend the order. Um, and But Max is entirely right. I mean, one of the things that I think that is very important that NTEU has done is we filed a, uh, we filed a lawsuit on this, and our complaint um, asks that the um, court declare the order unlawful um, and uh, enjoin its uh, implementation. And I think that's an important piece here. Max, the, the car analogy that you used, I think, is, is an apt one. Is it just as simple, though, as sometime, hopefully on January 20th, 
uh, for the case of these employees, for President Biden to sign an EO that repeals this uh, executive order of President Trump, and that fixes everything. It doesn't sound like the analogy that you used indicates that that will necessarily fix everything. No, it doesn't. And, you know, you have to be thinking about what does this mean for the people in government today who are working incredibly hard on behalf of the American public? Uh, it is it creates uncertainty. It creates, um, you know, fear. Uh, and at the end of the day, it undermines, again, the really important ability of career professionals to speak truth to power, to raise issues that should be raised uh, without having to fear for their job, uh, and to make sure that they're also um, surrounded by other uh, career civil servants who are hired for the right reasons for on the basis of merit. So, you know, there's definite things that can be done to unwind this, but the harm could really be real. And it's not only Schedule F. You have to be concerned about burrowing. Uh, you have to be concerned about hiring other people into career positions that really ought not to be there or being hired for the wrong reasons. Um, and you have to rebuild the relationship with the career workforce itself. There's a lot of damage that's been done. At the end of the day, we face a ton of big problems that we know about. There'll be problems that are coming around the corner that we don't know about. And we need a government, and that means uh, people in the government uh, who are the best and brightest, who are able to manage these problems and who are supported by their leaders to do the work that they're there to do. Max Steyer, Tony Reardon, thank you very much for joining me. Thank, thank you. you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. You get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC 7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.